turn with me, if you have your Bibles, uh, to two places, uh, Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2, if you can kind of hold your place in both spots. Um, and then, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. But Matthew 2 and Luke 2. We're going to start uh, in Luke because from a chronological standpoint, that is... Um, that's the part of the script, the, the part of the story that takes place first, uh, at least between Matthew two and Luke two. Um, Luke one, of course, God comes to Joseph, that all that stuff. But uh, picking up with um, where we left off, looking at some of the folks that were uh, key in the coming of Christ and God revealing Himself to them. We want to start with uh, verse eight. We looked at Mary and Joseph last week. Let's look first, uh, starting verse 8, chapter 2 of Luke. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Dropping down to verse 15. So when the angels had gone away and went into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the same which was told of them concerning this child. And verse 20, it says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had seen and heard as it was told them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time this evening. Lord, we pray that you would just bless our time in your word. Uh, Lord, that you would just reveal to us the ways that we can grow in your grace You'd conform us more to the image of Jesus. As you've done with our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago, you formed a godly character in them. Lord, we know that you want to do the same in us. And Lord, we pray that you would accomplish that work, that we'd have willing hearts, tender hearts, and soft hearts. Lord, please drive out anything that the enemy would use to distract here tonight that we would hear from you and you alone. Anoint me, your servant. Anoint your people that we would hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this Christmas story, we looked last week at uh, what uh, I might characterize as the leading roles. Uh, you're familiar with Mary and Joseph. We looked at that. We won't have time to get into Zacharias and Elizabeth. They have a different role. They, they were before Jesus was born primarily, uh, but, but not exclusively. But at least what's written about them, we, we don't know beyond what was written, what other roles that they played uh, in Jesus' early years. But we want to look at a few of these other uh, important individuals, and some of them are a little bit of a group, the shepherds, the wise men are a group, but then some are individuals, and we'll kind of work our way through uh, and see how far we get. I have four individuals or groups to, that we want to look at tonight if we're able to get through all of them. But we want to start here with the shepherds uh, in this brief series last week. Um, we had the premise 
that in this hand-picked cast, uh, God had chosen a few people to observe the entrance of Messiah. And we could, um, we could highlight uh, what we looked at last week with Joseph and Mary and, and understand that their role uh, was obviously the most central and the most important to those that would be with Jesus all the way till his adulthood years. Uh, but there was these other individuals, and they all are important as well, and they have an important role to play, but also some important things for us to learn. But each of these folks, even though God handpicked them to be part of Jesus coming into the earth, uh, none of these individuals were perfect. And Jesus was, but he is the story, right? The rest of them are part of this story. None of them were perfect. In every case, their hearts, though, were in position, in position, uh, in a position of humility, in a position of surrender that allowed them to be used by God and for the glory of God. That's all God asks of us, isn't it? That we would be in position. He's not asked you, hey, become talented. You've kind of got what you got. But you can serve and work under the Lord. But he says, just be in position. I'll do the rest. We started off with these starring roles of Mary and Joseph, but uh, again, Jesus himself is the story. And tonight, within this story of Messiah and his birth, we'll look at some of the supporting cast, the shepherds, Simeon, Anna, and time permitting, the wise men of the Magi from the east. But let's start here with the shepherds as we read in Luke chapter 2. If you're taking notes this time, the slides are working. So uh, last week I was without the visual aids. We were able to get through it nonetheless. Um, our brothers and sisters around the world said, hey, you don't need slides anyway, right? You know, Jesus didn't have slides. He did a pretty good job teaching on the mountainside there. So uh, more than a pretty good job, right? So first, the shepherds. One of the things we want to look at in their characters, they were humble. Humble. And they had a job and a vocation that was very important and vital, you know, wool, Milk, things like that. I mean, people benefit, and yet it was considered lowly, dirty, undignified. You know, I read something recently. How many think farmers are important in our country? I, I read recently. Did you know that their suicide rate is twice that of veterans? In the United States. Pray for our farmers, folks. I used to have an economics professor in college, and he well, I don't think he was a believer, but he, he said the most important job in America, because I might have said pastor now, but he didn't. He said, farmers won. I still remember, you know, certain professors, you still remember what they said. He said, farmers, then teachers. I don't remember who was third. I just remember one and two. Farmers, he said, if we don't have food, we're all in trouble. And two, if we don't have teachers, then no one's there to teach people all the other skills that are needed. So he said every other role flows from those two. But, but yet we pay celebrities, athletes, you name it, at the top of the list. And they are, they are consumers, not actually, I, I've never eaten anything because someone threw a touchdown. <laughs> I, and, I'm, and I like sports. You know that. I mean, I do. But um, these shepherds, they were unappreciated but yet they were humble. They served in a job. Nobody was like, hey, can I have your autograph? You're a shepherd. You smell great. You're out, you know. So 
but, but they had a humble job, and they were okay with it. Are you okay with the titles or lack thereof that God's given you in this, in this life and in this world? Uh, number two, so we understand they, they were humble. They had an uh, undignified calling, if you will, not to God, but I mean in, in society, uh, so much so that you know, going back to the time of Egypt, you know, it was an abomination for the Egyptians to even get near, but touch shepherds. It was not, not considered anything you really wanted to be, and yet Jesus is called what the good shepherd. But to be a shepherd, you got to be diligent at it, because on top of it not being a role that anyone else wants, on top of it being not highly paid, not highly thought of, on top of it, it's incredibly hard. And this goes back to why so many farmers are committing suicide. The other part of the study, um, I can't remember the exact figure. I want to say it was over 1,000, something like 1,300 to 17. The average farmer loses between 1,300 and $1,700 every year. That's their net income. It's a loss. So um, that's a problem. And some of these problems will become real to all of us down the line. So we might want to really pray about these things, as I mentioned. But, but uh, a farmer, just like a shepherd, has to be really diligent just to get the job done. They're long hours. You've heard of farmer's hours. Well, shepherd hours are just as difficult, perhaps more difficult, because they're really kind of manning the sheep 24-7 all through the night. The hours were long. It's nonstop tiring. The climate ranged from what? Very, very cold. If you get to go to Israel with us in February 2019, at times at night, it's pretty cold, especially if you're in the northern part of the country. Uh, but it also goes through phases where it's incredibly hot, well over 100 degrees, uh, and all points in between. And then you have the times when it's just raining on you, and you're just drenched. That's always enjoyable too, right? And yet here these men were, day after day, night after night, caring for these sheep. And by the way, God is looking for leaders and servants among us that year after year, month after month, will care for his sheep, even when it's tiring, even when it's difficult, even when it's un- inconvenient. Parents, you know what this is like. You're called to do these things. You have your little sheep in the house, and you're supposed to care for them, even when it's tiring, even when it's difficult. The next thing, and we're just kind of checking through these. Again, these are character attributes, if you will, that these men had, that they displayed, that we want to see uh, God form in us. They had faith and they were believing. And the angels told them, hey, this is, this is what's about to take place. Don't be afraid. Good tidings. There's born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. When they heard, they stopped and they observed. It would be hard not to observe angels you know, talking to you in the sky, right? You know most people that don't pay attention in church would probably pay attention then. All right, this is pretty amazing, right? But they observed and they believed, and we know they believed because they went and did what they were told to do. I'm enjoying this strobe light, not so much. Um, They went and did what was told of them, and that's how we know they believed. What are we doing with the word God's given us? Are we taking it and saying, Lord, I believe it, now I'm applying it. 
I'm doing it. What you've revealed, I'm doing that in my life. I'm going forward to where you've told me to go. I'm uh, parenting as you've asked me to do. I'm loving my neighbor. I'm praying. I'm in your word. It's faith that we've received, but if we really believe it, we'll actually put it into practice. And they did. They might not have understood all that they were told, but they knew that they were supposed to go into Bethlehem, and they went. The next thing we see, worshipers. They simply went to Jesus, uh, not knowing all all they knew, that the Savior is born. The Savior, the one that uh, can redeem you from your sins. They believed who he was. They knew he was worthy of them laying aside everything else that was going on. We don't know who was watching the sheep. Are they just trusting in the Lord that they're not going to run off? That would be a miracle, right? Normally you have to have someone there, but God can take care of that. I don't know how they left them with someone. Who do you call if it's dark? And I don't know. But they laid everything else aside to go and worship. How about us? Are we regularly laying aside all of our cares, all of our concerns, even our vocation, and that never-ending task list to go and worship the Lord? Are we laying those things aside? You know, the task list is always going to be there. The stuff is always going to be there. When God says six days a man shall work, but the seventh day rest, do you realize he knew that every year, every month, every week on the sixth day or whatever it is, because in the New Testament, there's some latitude on when you want to worship the Lord. But nevertheless, your task list will always be there. So you'll never be able to say, well, I'm too busy to go, Lord. But always, this will be incorporated into your life. Are we too busy to put everything else aside? Are we too busy to worship? Are our calendars too full? God came to shepherds. Their time was full, but their calendar wasn't full, if that makes sense. Concerned with what other people will think if we truly worship. You know, as God telling you, sometimes when you are worshiping, you say, I really want to put up my hands, but I'm afraid what the person around me will think. Not worshiping them. Worshiping the Lord. Maybe we just don't feel like it. A lot of times we come into church or even we get up in the morning, it's our personal work. We don't feel like worshiping. It's not about feeling. They might not have felt like going into Bethlehem. They might have not felt like leaving the sheep behind. They said, this is what the Lord said to do. Let's go to where the Savior is. Maybe it's too inconvenient. It was dark. Night was far spent. And yet there they went. Yes, I know our lives themselves. I know our lives themselves are supposed to be a continuous form of worship. And our lives are are to be an offering to God. But we're also called to bring an offering. Not just our lives be an offering, but to bring an offering. To intentionally praise God. To intentionally say, I'm going to stop and sing. I'm going to go. I'm going to gather with the body of believers, other shepherds, and worship. Is it still a priority in our lives, or is that one slipped further down? Question we have to ask ourselves. Lastly, they were others-minded, these shepherds were others-minded. When they got there and they had the opportunity to to see Christ himself and worship, um, they went and made known these things, which they made it widely known, 
according to verse 17, they could not contain the good news. They couldn't keep the good news to themselves. The gospel, as you know, means good news. Um, we sing that song around this time of year, Go Tell it on the Mountain. Kids love it, by the way. It's one of their favorites. And we know that we go tell on the mountain because the good news is the best news. It's the most important news we could ever bring. So the Lord might ask us, where are you individually? Where are we collectively when it comes to sharing the gospel? Uh, are we sharing it or are we inadvertently hiding it? Are we praying for God's help in sharing it? The, one of the, the, the first thing we must do, if, if we're honest with ourselves, say, you know what? <laughs> I have not been sharing the gospel. I can't even remember the last time I shared the gospel. The first thing we do is say, Lord, I need your help. We need his help. That, that's pretty easy, right? Lord, we need your help. Sh throw me, as I say, some softballs. Show me how I can get the ball rolling again. And, hey, inviting someone to church. Tell our neighbor, hey, we'd love to have you come. The little bags that the ladies will be giving out. Just, hey, can I leave you with this? I want to tell you about what God did in my life. There's so many different ways, but we need to pray. God, uh, open some doors for me. Give me divine appointments. We start praying that way. God will do those things in our life. He will bring these opportunities. The shepherds, they thought of others, and so should we. Now let's take a look at another character. Look at uh, the life of Simeon, or not the life of Simeon, but at least uh, his interaction with Jesus just shortly after he was born. Verse 25, chapter 2, Jesus had been brought to Jerusalem, brought to the temple for the circumcision on the eighth day, and he, then he was brought to the temple. It takes place verse, starting in verse 21, but we'll pick it up with verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. So Jesus has already been born. We're talking about eight days after now. Uh, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, the one who would come and comfort the nation, the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's lowercase. So the Holy Spirit is upon Simeon. And it had been revealed to him, to Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and glory of your people Israel. Joseph and his mother marveled at these things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon, a devout and just man, the first thing we want to look at, we don't know this is the only place he's mentioned in the Bible, so we don't have any other reference point of his life. There's, you can't say, well, let me look over here and find what the apostles wrote. This is the only place he's mentioned. We don't know uh, what he did most of his life, although it's obvious that he lived it for God. But we can see, 
that he was just and devout. What does that mean? Well, just, it means upright. In the Greek, um, one of the reasons why God uses the Greek language, we know this looking back, no one would have known at the time, but the Greek language is a lot more rich language than the English language. In other words, for any one word, in the Greek, there's multiple ways uh, that the Greek can speak to the same thing, and it's based on context. And here, the word just, it means upright, righteous, virtuous, one that is keeping the commands of God. So that would be an apt description of this just man. And devout. Well, devout means carefully and surely. So he was intentional in his following the Lord and doing it faithfully, doing it in a virtuous manner, uh, endeavoring to keep the commands of God, not to be perfect. I mean, he would have known that he was a sinner, but he was carefully and surely following the Scripture. He served God by paying careful attention to the commands of God. And he also, no doubt, as someone who is faithful and studying the Word of God, remember there's no New Testament at this point. That comes after the life of Christ. The, uh, you have the Tanakh, Genesis through Malachi, and the scrolls. So he would have been able to know and study and sit under teaching and perhaps was a teacher himself, uh, understanding what, would ha had, what had already been written prophetically about the Messiah to come. So no doubt he had also probably been reading the prophecies related to Jesus. And although there was an heir at this time period, when um, Caesar Augustus sends out this uh, census, well, that comes perhaps two years later, but nevertheless in the same time period of that time period of the Roman Empire, although there was a great expectation of a coming Messiah, in other words, all of Israel was thinking our Messiah is soon, our, our next David, our next great king is coming. There was an expectation, there was a, a height of expectation that a Messiah was coming, and a number of the prophecies were being discussed, and certainly you could look in the Scriptures and start to look at the prophecy of Daniel and start to do the math, and all of that stuff was available, and there was this air of expectation that there would be a Messiah. It's noteworthy that even with all that, all of the people that we see in the cast of characters, Joseph, Mary, Simeon, Anna, the shepherds, the wise men, you ever, has it ever struck you that they all got divine revelation over and above the Word of God? This is my thinking on that. In other words, divine revelation played a key role in every single one of the people that we see recognized as those who saw Jesus come as a baby. Divine revelation was there. Even if they were thinking, man, it looks like it's getting close. And I think of that with us because we might look at the sign and say, man, it looks like Jesus is right around the corner. And here's the thing. Prophecy becomes much more clear when God finally reveals it. Isn't that deep? <laughs> this is what they all found. Anna, shepherds, wise men, Mary, Joseph. Even if they'd heard from their kid, oh, by, by the way, one day Messiah is coming. One day the Messiah is coming. And if they all said, let me get out my prophetic map. It's going to happen around here. I've done the math. It's going to be this, it's going to be that. And even if you got the best minds together, nobody was really sure until God comes exactly to each one of these individuals or groups 
in different ways and says, you're going to have a baby, you're going to marry her, uh, you won't die until he comes, you'll stay in the temple until, I, until you see him, you guys are going to travel across land with camels, and all of this they were revealed divinely. Now, I haven't had any divine revelations like that in my life. We have the Word of God. We have the finished Word of God, Genesis to Revelation. But with the first coming, um, for whatever reason, uh, things were hazy. Although they were expecting, expecting things, it was still hazy, and no one could put the pieces together until God came and he stepped in. Not only Jesus stepped into time, but the Holy Spirit, using an angel, stepped in and said, this is how it's all going to unfold. Now, the, uh, we know that he was faithful, and that's why God comes to faithful people. You may not get prophecy in your life, but you will get clarity from God if we remain faithful. Amen? He was spirit-anointed. Now, we want to be spirit-anointed. Not everyone is called to be a pastor or an evangelist or uh, different roles. And certainly the apostles were a once in, in an entire church age role, but aside from all that, we all need an anointing for our callings in life, whether it's parent, grandparent, brother, sister, you know, we need God's work in our life that we're not just doing the work of God, but we're doing the work of God through the Spirit of God. And in verse 25 through 27, we see that it says the Holy Spirit was upon him in verse 25. In verse 26, it was revealed to him by the Spirit. So the Spirit was upon him. The Spirit was revealing. And then he was led, in verse 27, by the Spirit into the temple. The Spirit told him to go into the temple at a certain time. You need to go in because right now you're going to see, you're going to walk right into a parent, a group, a set of parents, and they have a child, and this is what you've been waiting for. You've been waiting for Messiah. You're going to see him. He's not, he's not a full-grown king. He's a baby. I don't know what God told him, but I'm saying when he saw the baby, he knew immediately the Lord had revealed, that's the king right there. He's not wearing a crown. There's no entourage. That's the king. That's the Messiah. That's the consolation of Israel. The Spirit was upon him. The Spirit was revealing to him, and the Spirit was leading him. And here's what we can understand for us. Men and women who stay close to God will hear from God and will be led and filled by the Spirit of God. The same is available to us. We may not, we won't be in the temple. There is no temple right now, <laughs> so that's not going to happen. We're not going to see baby Jesus. He's never going to be a baby again, ever. That's not happening again. But we can and will be led by the Spirit of God, and we can be anointed in our life. The next thing we see in his life, he was patient. This is a tough one to learn in life, isn't it? Patience says he was waiting. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We're waiting for Jesus to come back, aren't we? We're not just sitting in a corner waiting. We're waiting while we're working, while we're praying, while we're being re-strengthened. If it wasn't for the Lord, we would have collapsed a long time ago, right? But we're waiting in the Lord. He was waiting. He patiently and expectantly, are we expecting Jesus to come back the second time? Of course he will. He was waiting patiently and expectantly for the revelation of the Messiah. Exactly what he would look like. Um, again, even though the prophecies had said 
you know, there in Isaiah, it's unto you a child is born. That still went over a lot of people's heads, right? You know, you can read that, but they really didn't expect a child. What does that mean? Maybe that's some uh, verbiage that God's using, but it can't really be a child, right? It's got to be really a big, strong King Saul-looking dude, right? It's got to be that. But he was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for Simeon. It might have been like Abraham waiting, will I ever really have a son? Lord, uh, I don't know if you know, I'm pushing 100. Were you aware of that? Sarah's not getting any younger, although she still looks amazing according to all the other kings, right? But she's not getting any younger. Waiting and waiting. And in Abraham's life, it came far later in life than he expected. In Simeon's life, it likely came far later in his life than he expected. And by the way, in your life, some things are going to come later than you expect. Sometimes I hate to break it to us far later than we expect. And that's when we, you know, it's always too soon to quit. And we wait and we wait and we wait. And you never know. Your revelation could be right around the corner. And we gave up a mile too soon. Right? But Simeon didn't. He kept waiting. He kept waiting. He kept waiting. If you're alive, keep waiting. The next thing we see about him is also, this is a common trait with each of these folks, another worshiper. In verses 28 through 32, I don't have time to reread it, but you know, he takes Jesus in his arms and he begins to worship and he, and, he, and he says, and he blessed God. Now, the way we bless God is to worship God. You really can't do anything to bless God. It's not like you can add to his bank account or uh, make him really happy or anything like that. But he is well pleased when we offer up a sacrifice of praise. He's well pleased when we say, Lord, you are worthy. He took Jesus in his arms. Um, interestingly for all of us, God takes us in his arms, doesn't he? But for this one time, there was a, this one time in Jesus' life, he was small enough that someone could take him and the Savior in their arms. But at the same time, he looked up to God because he knew that uh, what a great opportunity to worship. He was literally in the presence of the very one. He was holding the one that formed the universe, that formed him. What a sobering thought. This common trait and observation that we see in Simeon as a worshiper uh, was found in all those that the Messiah was revealed. Every one of them that saw the revelation of Jesus worshiped. They worshiped him. It was an automatic response, and it should be an automatic response in our life too, shouldn't it? The revelation of Christ in our life, we should automatically... When you read the Word of God, you're reading the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know that you know the book of Revelation is not the only revelation of Christ. The whole Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said in the road to Emmaus. But when you read the scriptures and Christ reveals himself, it should cause you to sometimes stop, put your Bible in your hand for a second, and say, Lord, I just got to worship you for a second. I need to say thank you, right? It, it inspires worship in our life. Now, the last thing with Simeon, again, these are just, this is not meant to be, you know, uh, entire night's workshop or deep dive on one individual. But again, just looking at what is the character we can see in them that we want to see revealed in our own lives. And the last one here is a bold witness. There's other people there, perhaps standing around, Mary and Joseph. Uh, he just has to give what God gives him. Verse 34, uh, I wouldn't relish uh, this responsibility he was given. 
just put yourself in Simeon's shoes. He says, he's looking at Mary, verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, now you know all moms never want to see harm or difficulty come upon their children. Moms don't want to see their kids die a young death. They don't want to see their kids with disease. They don't want to see their kids suffer, be bullied, whatever it is that's going on. None of that stuff. But he looks at Mary, and remember, he's, the Holy Spirit has now come upon him, so he's prophesying by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, this is what I want you to say, and this is what he says, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Now, praise the Lord, he's good for our rising, amen? We shall rise at the end of the age because of this child's fall. But many other people will fall all the way into hell because of this child. He said, for the fall and rising of many, and for a sign which will be spoken against, and this is where it gets tough for Mary, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Can you imagine Mary at the day of the crucifixion? Body, soul, spirit crushed. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And he's basically saying the only way that their, their revelation of their need of salvation will take place is this sword to go through him, which, by the way, Mary's going to pierce you too because you're going to see this take place. Now, she didn't know when. This is, as it turns out, this will be 33 years after. This is, so she doesn't know, all right, when are we talking about? It'll be 33 years later this will all come to pass. Right there in the city of Jerusalem where they're at right now. Mary doesn't live in Jerusalem, remember? Soon they're going to head to Egypt, then they'll be up in Galilee. They don't live in Jerusalem, but they'll be right back at this same city 33 years later. Joseph will no longer be on the scene. It'll be just Mary and Jesus. Notice that he talks to Mary. The spirit knew Joseph wouldn't be alive at that time. He doesn't even say it to both mom and dad. He says it only to Mary. But that takes some bold Holy Spirit anointed, preaching and teaching to say, I've got to tell you this, and I really don't want to say it, but this is what the Holy Spirit wants to say. And in your life, brother and sister, there will be times where if you're really committed to proclaiming the truth and the love of God and the revelation of Christ in our life, there will be times God will have you say something you're really not comfortable with, and yet Lord will say, hey, say it in love. Are you telling me there really is a hell? What are you going to say? No. Right? We'll say, yes, there is. But no one has to go there. We may not be comfortable with the things God asks of us, but we can be assured that the Spirit will give us what we need. Let's take a look at this next individual, also uh, like Simeon, up in age. Waiting, waiting for some time for the things that God was uh, going to be revealing. Let's look at Anna, starting in verse 36. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, um, probably even older than Simeon, and had lived uh, with a husband and uh, seven. Had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. In other words, uh, because it was expected that any Jewish girl would be a virgin at marriage. From the time she got married, they were only married seven years. They only had seven years of a marriage. And then she became a widow, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years and did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in 
that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him, Jesus, to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She also knew the instant Jesus came in that that was the Messiah. The Holy Spirit just revealed it to her. It was an automatic. The Lord says, that's the one right there. Just like for Simeon, she knew. Um, the Bible says she's a prophetess. Uh, what that really means is someone who speaks the word of God. It doesn't indicate that she was giving prophetic things like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but she was one who spoke the word of God. Uh, there was three women in the Old Testament that also were given this same title, Miriam, Deborah, and Huldah. So if you study your Bibles, you probably are more familiar with Miriam uh, than you, and Deborah than you are Huldah, but they are the three that also are given that title, prophetess. Uh, but we want to look at some things in her life that exhibit a godly character that we also can appreciate and understand and apply in our own life. Uh, would you agree she was persevering? Oh, yeah. Tough, spirit, spiritually tough woman. Really, someone really committed. Um, she endured pain early in life, and no one wants to only be married seven years. Most of us look forward to 25th anniversaries, 50th anniversaries. No one really said, hey, hey, I'm really looking forward to only have a seven-year marriage. Seven-year itch aside, that's not, you know, that, that wasn't her uh, plan in life. She endured pain early in life, and yet she clearly gave it all over to God and rested on his alternative plan for her life. Now, it wasn't an alternative plan for God. It was always his plan. But it would be alternative in her mind, perhaps, to say, wow, this was not what I was expecting. Sometimes there are things in our life that are, wow, we're not, Lord, I really wasn't, is this really what you had for me? But she was, complete, uh, she was committed to the simplicity of serving God and to the laying aside of anything that would distract her from this single purpose. Very committed to saying, Lord, this is the plan. I'm going to be laser focused on it. This is what you want for my life. The more we focus on and trust God, the more content and at peace we'll be with circumstances and callings that we might never have considered before and certainly didn't desire. That makes sense? In other words, if you, if you find someone say, um, you know, I was reading about C.T. Studd the other day, and you know, when God called him to Africa, and but most people... You know, thought he was nuts. Dude, you're 48 years old, and you're thinking about going to Africa. You've already been through so many things. You've already you know, given your life as a drink offering as it is. But when you walk with God, you become more and more comfortable with God saying, this is the plan. Even if other people say, well, why would you do that? Why would you hang out in the temple night and day? Because God had just changed her mind and heart so much that that to her was not a prison it was freedom. I doubt, though, that Anna said growing up, I'd like to get married, have my husband die in seven years into the marriage, and then I want to live the rest of my life in the temple. That probably wasn't her plan, but she ended up embracing it. Uh, it it's believed, now if you, at the time, the great temple that was there, there was living quarters on the, um, in the outer court, but those living quarters were for the priests, but many scholars believe that Anna had such a unique calling that even the priesthood noticed 
we need to give her a room here. We don't know that to be the case, but it says that she didn't leave the temple night and day uh, unless she was just sleeping in the outer court. But, uh, but most believe that, uh, that people recognized, even the, even the temple authorities and priests had probably recognized that God has this unique calling and gave her a, her own room, a, a widow's room in the outer court. And that, again, that was usually only for the priesthood. But she was persevering through all that early pain. She was sacrificial. She wasn't just faithful. Now, you can be faithful and not yet be sacrificial. True? I mean, there's things you can be faithful at that aren't all that much of a sacrifice. I'm just faithful every day. I'm faithful to put cereal in the bowl for the kids. You could argue that's really sacrificial, but sacrificial would be scrambling the eggs and you know, doing all the other, you know, just taking a little beyond. Here you go. Boom. But faithful. Beyond that, she was sacrificial. Her faith was so strong that she was able to dedicate her entire life to prayer. Her entire life to prayer. Does this not make us question the willingness of our own sacrifice in our own lives? Whatever level of sacrifice we have in our own lives. Have we really presented, have we really presented um, our lives as living sacrifices or are we avoiding the call of sacrifices? Have we presented it, or are we avoiding the call of sacrifice? And so God uh, will knock on our hearts and say, hey, I want you to sacrifice this to me. And are we saying yes, or are we saying no to those things? Now, we mentioned that uh, she gave her whole life to prayer. Obviously, she was prayerful. She wasn't just faithful and sacrificial in prayer, but invested in prayer and fastings often fasting. Paul said this about his own life. He said prayer and fastings often. You want to you see God do big things, you have to say, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to draw nearer to the fire of your spirit. She fasted often. She not only prayed a lot, but she believed in the power of prayer. Um, do we believe in the power of prayer? Are we committed to growing in our prayer life. She gave her whole life to prayer. She was worshipful, uh, as we've seen, this has been through each of, each of them, they respond in worship. Coming in, she spoke, uh, immediately gave thanks. All worshipers of the Lord give thanks to God. Thanksgiving and worship go hand in hand. Those who worship, uh, we praise Him with thanksgiving. It becomes the reply of our heart, and in coming in that instant, not only does she recognize Jesus, but she immediately has that heart of thanksgiving. Uh, we, have to, we have to really pray, Lord, cultivate in me a heart of thanksgiving. Uh, in the last three months, I have really, I mean, I've asked, Lord, show me where, where I normally have a, you know, I might would call it analytical, but the Lord said, no, that's critical. <laughs> what I was... But I went, well, I analyze things. The Lord said, no, you complain about them. You're calling it analytical because, well, no one's around but me. I'm just thinking through it. God says, I didn't ask you to think through it. I just said, thank me and move on. Right? And we would save ourselves a lot of undue stress and strain and agitation if we'd stop analyzing everything, which is really 
being critical of this situation, that situation. I'm talking about things, I'm not talking about of other people. That's, a whole, that's gossip and a whole other problem. I'm talking about things God allows in your life, and we, we whine about them, we workshop them to death, we look at them from every different angle. We, we should just say, all right, Lord, at the instant, I'm going to instead give you thanks. I'm going to instead give you thanks. I'm going to instead give you... We see that someone who prays with God a lot, her heart was immediate thanks. God wants us to cultivate that. So I've asked the Lord, and I'll catch myself a lot more now, starting to analyze something. No, 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 I'm not analyzing this, Lord. Thank you, and I'm moving on. Gracious. She was also gracious. This is the last one of her. We might be able to touch the wise men. All right, yeah, I think we're, we're going to come really close here. Gracious. And she spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Read that one more. And she spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. There's so much more that can be said and appreciated in each one of these saints. And the same goes for the final words here in the account of Anna. We could say a lot more about these final words about her. We don't have the time. But let's look at a couple things. Her love for the Lord gave her a love for people. Her love for the Lord gave her a love for people. She wasn't saying something like this. Look. Just kind of thinking, look, I've sacrificed my whole life for God. And now I've found the Messiah. But you're going to need to do your own 50 to 60 years of praying if you want to find Messiah. You're going to have to do your own fasting for years. You're going to have to do your own service and find your own Messiah. She didn't have some indignant, I've done so much for the Lord. I've suffered for 50, 60 years. I've done all this stuff. She didn't seem to have any kind of, look at all I've done for God. That wasn't there. Remember the older prodigal son, uh, the older brother of the prodigal? He was not real happy when the prodigal came home. Because he was like, I've done all this stuff. He had no joy in the grace that was being freely given to the returning son. He didn't have that grace for him. John Stott said, grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. I believe this is exactly how Anna saw God's grace in her own life. And she reflected God's heart in extending that grace to others. It says she spoke of him. She spoke of him. To who? Who did she speak to? Those who looked for redemption. Those that were looking for redemption. In Greek, this word means, this word redemption, in the Greek it means ransom, deliverance, especially from the penalty of sin. She was looking for those that were looking for a ransom, someone to pay their sin debt, someone who could deliver them, someone who could wash them. Now Jesus, we know, would later go to the, the most down and out, broken hearted, sin infested, disease infested people, and those are the ones that he came and he healed from head to toe. Inside, outside. But she was looking for those that were weary, those that were broken. Um, this word redemption, by the way, where it says here, uh, is only used a couple of other times. It's used in Luke 168, and it's also used in Hebrews 9.12. But I, found, uh, I find my, uh, earlier this morning, I was 
thinking more about these notes and thinking about the text, and I found myself praying for the heart of Anna earlier this morning. I, I just, uh, Lord, give me, I woke up just thinking about her heart. Lord, give me that kind of heart. Am I seeing those people that are looking for redemption? Or do I walk right past them? Am I seeing the people that are looking for redemption? Or am I seeing those that don't even know about redemption? You have to pray to God again, just like we have to have help with patience and help with these other things. We have to pray to God to give us a, a heart that sees people's need, sees that they're lost. You look at Anna's prayer life, and it becomes clear why she cares about the souls of others. And I, I'll close with this about you know, just this thought. A praying life is a caring and gospel-sharing life. A praying life is a caring and gospel-sharing life guaranteed by God. If we, if, we, if we continue to grow in prayer, we will grow in caring about those that need redemption. All right. You want me to stop, or do you want to hear a couple minutes about the wise men and be done? It's up to you. If I put it to a vote, I'm not, my feelings won't be hurt. <laughs> As I already studied it, so I'm good. You know, but uh, No one wants to be the one. I, I want to stop right now. You know, I, no one wants to be that person. But you won't be looked down on. You, you got, God loves you still. All right, I'm going to give it five minutes. I really, I'm going to roll through this quick. Uh, just give a thumbnail. The wise men, I'm not going to read the text. It's in Matthew chapter 2. You're going to have to read it yourself, but just with the time we had. I put this in as bonus material just if we got to it. Um, but the wise men play a big role. Uh, you know what happened. I'm not going to read the story. You know what, you know, they travel across from what would be uh, modern-day Iran, Iraq, all the way across the Middle East there, uh, to originally Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem. Where's the king? Herod, what are you talking about? Herod, hey, when you find him, I want to worship him. I want to worship him too, right? You know, with a spear or a knife or whatever. Um, and obviously they eventually find the Lord. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy when the star came to its right place. And and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that's the essence of what we see uh, when they finally get there, when the star finally rests there. They have this great joy. They come in, they fall down and worship, and then they present the gifts. And so you've seen all these nativity sets. And by the way, that doesn't take place at the stable. This would have been at the house that they were living in probably two years later. So it, it definitely is not taking place uh, at the stable. Uh, but to kind of fit it all into the scene, you know, everybody puts the wise men in there too. And uh, it looks cooler for balance and all that stuff. I get it, but uh, it's not the way it happened. But the wise men, they were truth seekers, no matter who you are or where you are in the world. If you truly understand, they were, they were nowhere near Israel. Uh, they were in a foreign land. Uh, unless they had Jewish lineage, which is possible. It could have been related to uh, other uh, exiled Jews that were there with Daniel and others, but they also more than likely weren't uh, for, foreign seekers from a foreign land. But never, 
No matter where you are in the world, if you truly desire to know truth, if you truly desire to know the truth of God, God will reveal it to you. Anyone. God will come. Missionaries have told these stories time and time again that people had a heart to know, and all of a sudden God sends people their way. Uh, by his word he does this. By creation he does this. Another person. Um, the heavens themselves can speak, and certainly with the star here, God used a very supernatural uh, revelation there in the heavens and uh, to reveal his plan that happened to them but nevertheless uh, they had been probably reading the scriptures and other things that God had seen their hearts stirring but remember Pilate when Jesus when Jesus was there and he was about to be condemned to death and Pilate would give him the final death sentence Pilate said what is truth or Pilate made that statement what is truth uh, and yes that was certainly a cynical statement by Pilate but it was also one that reflected Pilate's disinterest in truth. Cynical, yes, but he also wasn't interested in the truth. See, truth would have dictated to Pilate that he would need to bow, that he would need to surrender, that he would need to seek the mercy of God. But Pilate liked the place he was in. He liked to sit on the throne of his own heart, much less he sat on the throne over all of Judah as well. And truth, for Pilate, would have brought conviction to change. He would have needed to turn from his sins. So when you say, what is truth, it's, it's just saying I'd rather ignore it, suppress it, or deny it. And that's, you meet a lot of people, uh, they, I don't know, no one knows what's true anymore. Well, they, they really just kind of want to ignore it, suppress it, and deny it, because there really is truth. It's found in the Word of God. Say, so why don't you read the whole book of John, and you'll find truth, because Jesus says a lot of times he's the truth in that book. But the wise men, they desired to hear from God, and they desired to seek truth wherever it would lead them. Lead them. They had no doubt studied and and poured over the scriptures, but they were thirsty. I think what's interesting is God probably, they were thirsty for a personal encounter with God. Are we thirsty for a more personal relationship with the Lord? A love for truth should always produce a love for God and the presence of God in our life. A love for truth, if we study the truth, it will lead us into personal contact with Jesus, not just he's way out there. You're going to meet him personally. That's what happened with the wise men. Number two, they had faith in believing. This was common across uh, each of these characters. They believed God was drawing them, and they set out to go wherever that might lead. Are we willing to go wherever God points the arrow in our life? Are we willing to go where God points the arrow? Because sometimes he points the arrow. Remember the first time, you know, my wife came to me and said, um, I think God's telling me we need to homeschool. I'm like, I'm not seeing that arrow. I don't see it, um, you know. But a few days later, I was there. But uh, at the outset, I was like, I don't know about that. You know, that you have a master's degree. You why don't you use it for good stuff? Use it for our kids. Why would we do that? You know, I, I was such a spiritual giant back in those days. You know, it's just like 20 years ago now, or, or 17 years ago. I don't know how long ago. It all runs together, but anyway. But I've been, a, I've been reluctant at times. I'm, when the Lord first told, laid on my heart, I'm going to call you into full-time ministry, I, I was not really excited about that either. I, I like what I'm doing, Lord, you know. I like the paycheck. I like the this. I like that, you know. I don't want to deal with all this other stuff. But you've got to go where the arrow is pointed. And the Lord pointed the arrow and said, it's outside of your country. Are you willing to go? And they did. 
They were determined and committed. This passion to follow the voice of God meant that they would alter their lives to go find the Savior. I mean, you don't just... It wasn't like they got on a, we're going to take a 645 flight over to Jerusalem. We're going to be there for a couple days, and we'll be back on Thursday. That's not the way it worked then. This is like uprooting all kinds of stuff to travel across seven, 800 miles, across desert and danger and all this. Just radical. We're going to go do this. Where are you going? We don't know. Who are you going to find? We don't know. Where is he at? Who is he? We don't know, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. But we're following anyway. Abraham did that, right? Determined. They said, God's speaking, we're following. Common theme. There's a common theme with Joseph, Mary, Simeon, shepherds, worshipers again. When they get there, you saw they, they fell down before maybe the one-year-old Jesus, maybe two-year-old Jesus. Anywhere between, remember, Herod wanted to kill every baby two and under, so we don't know the gap there, but whatever. He certainly was uh, not the knight of the stable, but however young, they fall down at the feet of Jesus, probably a toddler. All of their faith, all of their wondering, all of their searching, all of their travel, all of their effort and focus was on this one thing to get to go worship Jesus. All of that was to get to one moment of worship. But your whole life is to get to finally worship Jesus in heaven. Your whole life is about getting to the place where you're going to bow down before Jesus. You're not going to have any gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but you are going to have the gifts of your service in hand, casting crowns at his feet, right? It's a picture, by the way, of what, what is to come. It's an irony that here he's a baby. We'll see him on a throne lifted up, but our whole life is to get you know, Pilgrim's Progress. It's all the way to get to that end, the celestial city, if you will. Um, when they get there, when they finally get there, um, we see how they just collapse at his feet. They fall down and worship. They're finally seeing what God has directed. They're finally seeing the miracles of how they even got there. And, and in their heart, they just knew this little child is worthy of our worship. And we see the last thing about them, and I'm just kind of speeding this up to close us out here. They had giving hearts. And when they had opened up their treasures, they presented with gifts, gold, franks, and they've already uprooted their lives. They've already taken this trip. They've already done all that. But they, they start to just unload all these items of wealth to say, we want, we want to leave it at his feet. He's worthy of all of it. These men didn't just bow their face to the ground. They gave freely of what they had now come to know had already come from God. Everything you and I have came from God anyway. It all belongs to him. They didn't need a message on tithing. They didn't need a message on first fruit giving. They didn't need a message on free will offerings. No one told them to do this. Well, perhaps God did, but it was in their hearts to do it. And they brought these gifts without knowing anything about Mary and Joseph. They didn't even know who Mary and Joseph were. They didn't know what they were going to find. Herod didn't know any of this. No one knew except for God. They had not been briefed on the family's 
poor financial condition. They didn't know their needs. They didn't know if they were worthy or not worthy of these gifts. They just knew Jesus was worthy. That's all they knew. They just knew that, that this was the Son of God. So he was worthy. So they came with open hearts and with open hands to give to God uh, who had already given them vision. He had given them direction. And now he'd given them the grace, the Savior. And they put all that there. And boy, what a blessing that ended up being for the family. And we know that this was probably used for Jesus' escape down into Egypt until he was old enough to come back. God had it all planned, just like he gave Israel all that Egyptian money before they had to escape Egypt. Now it was given the reverse to get down to Egypt. But what a list of godly characteristics and fruit when you look at this list, not just this list, but each of the groups that we looked at last week and this week, not just the wise men, but each of these saints that God used to reveal himself uh, in the birth of Jesus. But let's, as we close here, let's make the emphasis for us in giving ourselves to Jesus. First and foremost, give ourselves to Jesus and make everything else secondary, especially during this Christmas season. Give ourselves to him, make everything else secondary. And if we do that, then just like the first Christmas, it'll be a ripple effect in our lives and all the people we touch around us. Amen? Because God wants to form these same characteristics in us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, just for the portraits of these lives. That um, They're not different people in a sense than us. They're made of the same flesh and blood. They have the same uh, missteps and misgivings. And yet, uh, Lord, you formed a godly character because they just continued to bring their hearts yielded. And we just ask that you would do the same with us. We yield our hearts and you would change us, change our thinking, change our worship, change our patience, make us more freely giving. And make up, uh, Lord, remind us when we're being analytical rather than worshiping, right? we're being critical and all these things, Lord, you, wanna, you want to form in us hearts that are moldable to the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this time, Lord. Remind us of these things, even tomorrow in this, this Christmas season, that we would be used of you as little lights in a dark world around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.